Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, my fine friends. Welcome to the first episode of a brand new season of the Tom Petty Project podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Brown. This is the podcast that digs into the entire Tom Petty catalogue, song by song, album by album, and includes conversations with musicians, fans, and people connected with Tom along the way. It's hard to believe that I've covered five full albums already. It feels like only yesterday I was trying to figure out how the format should work, how the heck I was going to find people who'd want to listen to it, and whether anyone would care if they did. So I did just want to give a quick shout out, or definitely a big shout out, to a few people who've been incredibly supportive of the show and what I'm trying to do. First off, the wonderful Pete Nestor, who connected with me really early on, and I think maybe even before I'd actually released an episode, on the Tom Petty Nation uh, Facebook group. Pete also hosts a fantastic podcast of his own called Honest and Unmerciful, a record review podcast. It's a never-miss show for me, so I really hope you check that out. Another massive thanks to Gwen Jones, who created the Tom Petty Fans Forever Facebook group and runs one of the friendliest corners of the internet that you'll ever find. Gwen also features prominently in this episode, and I think you'll enjoy the reason why. Thanks also to Dallas Helliker for reaching out to me within the first four or five episodes, I think, to ask about being my first guest on the show. He's a class act and was a brilliant first guest. A huge thanks to John Scott and Paul Zolo, whose books really helped to reveal who Tom was as a musician as well as a human being. To the mercurial and infinitely talented duo of Jake Thistle and Jeff Slate for not only joining me as guests, but also for flying the flag by playing Tom's music live wherever and whenever they can. Thanks also to listeners Bob Reedy, the Springsteen diehard, uh, historian and educator Mary Beth Donnelly, the supremely wonderful Janet Lovell, whose passion for Tom's music spans the decades, and to Paul Roberts for being there basically from the beginning and introducing me to Dog on the Run, which I'd never heard before. Thanks also to Pam McMonigal, Cheryl Blackier, Carol Rosenberg Shapiro, and fittingly for this episode, at Umrami, whose Twitter name is Born a Rebel. Umrami? Umrami? I'm not too sure how you do that, but... <laughs> um, thanks to Lisa Kelly Pennington for always trying to guess my ratings and for being almost always in tune with what I'm thinking. And last but not least, to my fantastic co-host, John Paulson, who joins me once a season to wrap up the album that I've been covering. His passion for Tom's music is infectious, and he's the undisputed king of Heartbreakers playlists. I've probably missed a bunch of people I really ought to thank, so I'll go back onto the interwebs later and make sure I shout out any of the rest of you that I missed in the episodes to follow. So anyway, I just wanted to say a few thanks because this project has been one of the most incredibly positive things in my life over the last 12 months, and it's mainly due in, you know, in, in large part to the relationships that I've forged over the love of Tom's music. All right, today's episode kicks off the Schizophrenic Southern Accents album as we listen to the epic opener, Rebels. If you're new to the podcast, I don't actually play the song in the episode itself out of respect for Tom's estate and because copyright is a legal minefield to tread through. I've left a link, though, in the episode notes so you can go back and listen to the track before we start, and once you've refreshed your memory, we can get started. The danger of writing a concept album about the American South is that it can be really easily misinterpreted. In my conversation with Megan Volpert, she talked about how people got completely the wrong end of the stick about the lyrics in You Got Lucky, and how they're not a misogynistic tirade, but a parody of that particular failure of character. Rebels even more squarely falls into this bracket, with Tom telling the tale of a guy down on his luck and fighting a losing battle against his own demons. This guy's inner narrative is that it isn't his fault, uh, because he's only a product of his southern heritage. Rebels is also a recording that Tom was never completely happy with. In conversations with Tom Petty, he tells Paul Zolo, it's another one that bugs won't listen to. 
He's talking, of course, about Bugs Wydell, who was the heartbreaker's roadie and Tom's driver and confidant for four-plus decades. And when Paul asks why, Tom explains, because we worked in it for a year. I was never happy with it. And he goes on to say that I have a demo that's much better than the record, and I think we were taking cocaine. It was one of the only times in the studio that we were on drugs, and I think it affected my judgment. Now, this may be another example of Tom having exceptionally high standards. Yes, the live versions of Rebels are almost always better than the studio recording, and I, in some ways, I prefer the more stripped down and sort of live feel of the alternate take on American Treasure, which I'll leave in the episode notes. But the version of this song on Southern Accents always gives me goosebumps as soon as the chorus kicks in. That big switch to the minor key works in any arrangement. And Tom felt that his vocal wasn't the best he could do on the record, but holy cow, that's a perfectionist taking his craft to the extreme because he still rings every ounce of emotion out of the lyric to my ear. The other thing, of course, that we have to talk about when we talk about this song is Tom almost ending his career as a guitarist in a fit of rage. As has been recounted several times, Tom was recording the album initially at his house and there was a big party scene developing and he couldn't get the songs to where they needed to be, so he calls Jimmy Iovine back in to help. The first thing that Jimmy did was to haul Tom out of the house and into Village Recorder to try and finish these songs up. After adding horns and mixing and remixing the song and changing production, Tom listened to the mix and then listened to his demo and felt that that was so much better than anything they'd recorded that he punched the wall out of sheer frustration and shattered his hand. Tom tells Paul Zola that at the hospital people said he's broken his hand and he'll never play again. And I didn't buy that. I thought I will play again. After eight months of rehab, including electroshock therapy, Tom was ready to return to Southern Accents, clean, refocused, and ready to finish the project. So I want to start this one off by talking about the lyrics, which is something I usually do at the end of the episode. But this whole song hangs on that lead into the first line of the chorus. When Tom sings, hey, 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 as that minor chord hits, it's an emotional scream of desperation that cuts right down to your primitive human instinct. But let's back up a little. Tom Petty is fairly widely recognised as having a gift for writing a killer opening line. She was an American girl, raised on promises. Some days are diamonds, some days are rocks. Let me run with you tonight, I'll take you on a moonlight ride. And on, and on, and on. But those two opening lines of Rebels, for me, are possibly the strongest he ever wrote. They set up the entire premise of the mini-play that is about to unfold in front of us. The first verse really gives us a portrait of a despondent, broken man who has trouble connecting with the world around him. He's a slightly pathetic figure who's pleading with his partner and assuring her that she'll feel differently in the light of a new son. Uh, but there's also a vulnerability there and something that makes you feel at least a little empathy for him. Maybe a little rough around the edges or inside a little hollow. I think a lot of people feel that quite a lot of the time. So that's someone struggling with identity and self-belief. But the chorus then shows that he also has a cowardly inability or unwillingness to face up to his own failings, and he blames his upbringing for how he's emotionally built. The second verse is much more specifically narrative. His partner bails him out, and Tom says that he wrote this sort of with uh, uh, someone being in jail in mind and his wife coming bailing him out. But then they have an argument, and she kicks him out of the vehicle. So that line, then she screamed in the car, left me out in the thicket. So this is clearly not an isolated incident in this relationship, but it doesn't stop the petulant childishness of the next line. Well, I never would have dreamed that her heart was so wicked. Again, everyone else's fault but mine, always looking for someone else to blame. So, back to the chorus and that DNA that's holding him back. The third verse then really expounds on where this paranoid reluctance to accept responsibility comes from and contains some sensational imagery. Even before my father's father, they called us all rebels. And yet again, that's a brilliant lyrical choice. He could easily have gone with granddaddy or grandfather, but father's father has an almost biblical sense of destiny in its implication. 
and they called us all rebels. So he's finding solace within this group he feels connected to, us against them, not our fault, they're against us. As they burned our cornfields and left our cities leveled, which Tom points out is accurate, and again, you know, it's so easily visualized in the mind's eye. And I suspect that it's this verse that is appropriated by the Confederate sympathizers and used out of context of the rest of the song. The last three lines of this verse, though, are sheer poetry of the very highest caliber. I can still feel the eyes of those blue-bellied devils. Yeah, when I'm walking around at night through the concrete and metal. And all over the world, there are parochial attitudes like this that like to churn up simmering resentment and use it to justify all manner of behaviors. And of course, we have the chorus. Hey, hey, monarchy, hey. I was born a major key, rebel. Paul Zola says to Tom, it has some beautiful lines in it. And Tom highlights one foot in the grave, one foot on the pedal. Another line that is very economical in saying a hell of a lot. In the grave versus on the pedal. Mired in the past, but trying to move forward. Blaming history, but living in the modern world. It's just fabulous. Well, that's deeper than I think I've dived into any lyrics so far. Um, But I had all these thoughts swirling around in my brain, so I thought I'd pour them out into your ears as food for thought. And I think that reading Megan Volpert's book has really made me more conscious of exploring these lyrics a little more deeply and trying to find those deeper meanings and those little nuggets. So I'm curious how long the episodes are going to be when we get to the songs from Wildflowers because there's a lot of meaning in those songs, packed with meaning. Alrighty, folks, it's time for some petty trivia, the first petty trivia of season six. So your question from the end of last season was this. The latest release from the Fillmore 1997 album is a cover of Call Me The Breeze, but which act wrote and originally released the song in 1971? Was it A, uh, Leonard Skinner, B, Chuck Berry, C, J.J. Cale, or D, the Everly Brothers? The Twitter poll yielded 32 votes, and the majority of you correctly identified that it's a J.J. Cale song. Of course, it was popularized by Leonard Skinner, and there's an obvious connection between Tom and Skinner as they played on the same bill numerous times when Tom, Mike, and Ben Mont were still in Mudcrutch. Mike tells Steve Newton in a 1999 interview that he and the rest of the Mudcrutch boys would share a bill with Skinner, with each band headlining in their respective hometowns of Gainesville and Jacksonville, Florida. Of course, Tom was also a huge fan of J.J. Cale and played with him several times. I'll leave a link to um, uh, a performance with him uh, in the episode notes. But when the Heartbreakers played this song during their Fillmore residency, Tom specifically name-checked Skinner in the intro to the song, and they played the same basic arrangement, with a, but with a blistering piano section from Ben Mont. So your question for this week is this. Three of the following states are the only ones in which the Heartbreakers never played a live show. But which is the state in which they did play? Is it A, West Virginia, B, Alaska, C, Utah, or D, Vermont? Okay, back to the song in a very weird place, I think, in terms of how I usually record these. Musically, Rebels is actually, you know, quite straightforward in many ways. Certainly that opening chord progression, major first, major fifth, minor sixth, major fourth, has been used about a gazillion times in rock and pop for decades and decades. But as with every well-worn progression, it's how you play it that counts. 
It opens, as so many IOV and era Heartbreaker songs do, with Stan Lynch's bombastic drums. Then we get that muted guitar for four bars and Ben Mont coming in on the organ for four more before the drums fill into the full band with Mike also crunching into the mix with his lead guitar part at the same time and adding in that incredible little lick. Stan Lynch is keeping a great little beat going on the drums so the, the snare is on the straight back beat on the twos and fours. So if you count out one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, the snare hits on those one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, while the kick is sitting on and around the ones and threes. So it's not just hitting one, two, three, one. It's hitting one, two, three, da, ba, ba. He's got, he's got all those little uh, sort of syncopation in there. Now, in those first eight bars, he's only hitting that snare on the four, not on the two and four, just on the four, to let the rest of that bar really hang wide open rhythmically. So after a 16-bar intro, we drop into that muted guitar tone again with no organ. Stan sitting on the fours on the snare again and leaving lots of wide open space for that vocal. On this track, it's actually Mike Campbell playing bass, and I'd love to know why that was. Um, I was definitely around, and remember, this is only the second album recorded after how he joined, but he only actually plays bass on four of the nine tracks, as well as providing vocals on seven. So the bass is really simple, fifth, first, partner in the chord progression, and I really have the sense that everything about the arrangement of this song was to give as much sonic space as possible to Tom's incredible vocal performance. And remember, he wasn't happy with this vocal. Are you kidding me? It's brilliant. The chord progression in these verses is again super simple. C, A minor, C, A minor. Those are the imploring lines in that first verse. F, G, F, G, major key, and a little more conciliatory or introspective. Then out to FG and that ferocious minor key on that tortured scream of, hey! The major key switch back to C on the word rebel in the chorus then roots us back in this fantasy of oppression that the protagonist has. It's just so beautifully crafted. And as we head into the chorus, we also get those sublime choral harmonies from both Stan and Howie. And I'm not sure how many songs both of them sang harmonies on together overall, but I'll do a little digging to see if I can find that out. And I don't think that Tom is singing those hey, hey, hey lines either. I think they're left to the Stan and Howie, and it's almost like it's those confederate ghosts of the storyteller's past responding to or affirming his pleas. Through that C to A minor section, Benmont's organ adds that sort of chill to the minor keys and fills out that treble space before dropping lower both in volume and octave through the one foot in the grave, one foot on the pedal section. And then the next time the word rebel comes in, it's now paired with a minor key change. So again, there's all kinds of emotional gymnastics that Tom's putting us through here to really live us sort of unsettled and imbalanced and slightly off guard. The last I was born a rebel, though, resolves again back to the major key. So it's almost like we're seeing this character ripping himself apart between his present reality and the reasons that he thinks that he finds himself in it. In the second verse, we get a little more organ to fill out the sound a little. It's more of a movie soundtrack now as we're heading into this narrative section where the first verse was almost that sort of internal monologue that needed a lot more space to breathe. The second chorus then plays out much as the first did, with Mike starting to add in more guitar fills and, of course, finding all the right spaces in between notes to do that. You know, I've seriously come to believe that Mike Campbell might be the best guitarist ever in terms of understanding a song and playing exactly what it needs every single time for over four decades now. His ear is unbelievable, and he's never really breaking molds or treading overly new ground, but he's taking every single thing that he's ever heard and using all of it perfectly in service of the song. And this song's a great example of it. You know, click to 154 um, and listen to the lead guitar. It sounds super simple, but he, again, he takes that fill past the gap and into the line down in Dixie, landing on that root minor note. Heading out of this chorus, we hit the middle eight. Now, this is where I'll differ from my friend uh, Nick Apostolarius, who commented on social media that he loves the horns being mixed much higher on the alternate version. 
And on this album and the next, we'll likely be talking a bit about horns, and I might be the minority, but I don't think this song needs them. I would actually have preferred a Mike Campbell's guitar solo here. Now, don't, again, don't get me wrong. I do love a horn section. And I think it suits Springsteen and the E Street Band really, really well. And you get a little bit of that flavor in this song, right? Um, but to me, it's never quite gelled with the Heartbreakers. And it always feels a little more like an afterthought and something added rather than something that was always intended to be there and something conceived while the song was being written. And actually, I'll post a, a link to a live version from 2014 when it stripped right back to its bones. And it actually has more uh, impact for me. So the horns just feel... They just feel a little bit out of place to me. And again, just that's just to me. I know they add a layer of grandeur to the song, but again, I, I just don't find that it's needed. You know, and this again, the bridge is also pretty straight and I'm not sure it really moves the song forward significantly. I mean, you know, compared to something like Wasted Life from Long After Dark where the middle eight is fantastic. This one, I don't know, it's just a bit repetitive or repetitious of other sections and it doesn't really change anything. So again, it's the only part of the song that I feel a little bit, it's just a little bit treading water. Now, out into the last verse, it's all about Tom's vocal delivery again. It's been superb throughout, but the anguish, fury, and resentment in how he delivers the sort of the pain and accusation that the character feels is pure theatre. Listen to how he sings, burn down the cornfields and left our cities levelled. You can almost see the character shaking with anger. And again, we get a super tasty trademark Mike Campbell lick after the word devils, just to accentuate that line. Then we get a killer melodic choice from Tom. In the line... When I'm walking around at night, listen to the note he chooses for the word night. He's actually singing that around at night in the minor key over top of the major chord. So again, it gives that nostalgic line a whole different feel to the way that phrase is delivered in other verses. And again, I very much doubt that that was accidental. We then hit the chorus again, and you'll hear Tom harmonizing himself before we have the intro lick again, leading back into that huge ending, which lasts almost a minute and a half. But... Tom has one last little trick up his sleeve before going into the main body of that outro. That progression goes C, G, A minor, F. But at the end of this last repetition, it also goes to G for two bars before heading into the hey, 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 which is not done at any other point in the song. So it's just a last little bit of suspense before the cast comes out to sing the refrain to the musical, Waiting for the Curtain. <laughs> Okay, folks, that's all for this week. I mentioned in the intro that my friend Gwen Jones has a connection with this song, and it's something that has always made the song more personal for me since she relayed the story to me. Gwen was my second fan chat on the podcast, and I just wanted to include the story as she told it to me here. It's just under a couple of minutes, but I think it puts this song into context so unbelievably well that I do think you'll really enjoy it. Um, I will tell you a funny little story. Um... My husband drank sometimes too much. Um, he uh, and a buddy went off one night uh, and they went like probably 70 miles from our house, 60, 70 miles from our house. And at 3 a.m. I get a phone call and it's the police department. And they're oh. like, you can come pick up your husband. And I'm like, no, I don't want <laughs> stuff so um anyway I call him or I called my brother-in-law to come get me because he was in my car my husband was and uh 
So we go drive out there. My brother-in-law just drops me off. I get my car uh, my, and his friend is with him and I don't even know his friend. So we get in the car because I'm leaving and the police say, you need to take them with you. I said, they're drunk. You're going to let me just take them, you know, and not. And he's like, take them because it's a little be small town. Right. So as soon as we get just out of town on the side of the road, I pull over and I stop and I'm like, get out. Both of you just get out. Don't walk in front of me and just walk yourself back home. And so I left him there and it took him literally to the next day to get home. But that wasn't my problem. And there was no, you know, and I did the scream in the car, left him out in the thicket. Yeah. We left out that song so much after the fact. It kind of just became a thing with us. Every time we hear that song, there was this look. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, yeah. that was my thicket song. <laughs> so my thicket story. Um how perfect a real-life story to mirror the type of situation that Tom was writing about, albeit to its excess. We'll get into the background and intent of the album more in the episode wrap, but I'd say this is the most overt example of the concept Tom was likely building toward. But again, here, he's not championing Manifest Destiny or the cause of the Confederacy. He's singing from the point of view of a character who blames all his self-induced troubles on his heritage. He's blending imagery with narrative and blurring the lines through the perspective of this hopeless drunk who just doesn't want to be alone and can't get himself righted. It's not a battle cry. I was born a rebel. In other words, it's not my fault. It's in my genes. Maybe this one gets misinterpreted again, like I said, because of that third verse, but also because of the fact that Tom was trying to write a love letter to the South. And in that, to the people of the South, not necessarily to the political ideals or political history of the South. You know, and there is a culture in the Southern states quite distinct from the issues of slavery and separation, and I always think that that's what Tom was tapping into. You know, whether it's food or music or working-class identity, there's much more to the Southern states than those blue-bellied devils, we'll often admit. For me, Rebels is one of those perfect Tom Petty songs that has all the elements you want to hear from the Heartbreakers. It's got a great big hook, a, you know, a different middle eight that takes the brand into new sonic territory with the addition of poems, even if I don't love them, and it's got one of Tom's top-tier lyrics. It makes you feel some sympathy for a three-dimensional character who isn't overly likable in his lack of self-awareness or self-centeredness, and yet sort of relatable in his forlorn sense of displacement and lack of identity. I would say that I prefer the intro on the alternate version where the drums are held out from the first eight bars, and I do agree with Nick, though, that if you're going to use horns, you may as well bring them up in the mix, which the alternate version does do in the bridge. I also think the drums have a more interesting, natural sort of live sound in the alternate version, but, you know, potatoes, potatoes. Uh, so again, I mean, I think this is a slam dunk 10 out of 10 as far as I'm concerned. And yes, even though this is one of the few bridges that I find a little bit uninspiring, I think the lyrics and vocal alone would make this track a 10. Add in the brilliant guitar and organ, and I think it's just an iconic Tom Petty song. Please remember that you can continue to support humanitarian efforts in the Ukraine in many different ways, and I would urge you to do so if you have the means. As always, I've added a link to the Red Cross donation page in the episode notes, and I will continue to do that. Uh, the Tom Petty Project is a proud member of the Deep Dive Podcast Network. Uh, go check them out on Twitter at Deep Dive Podnet. I'm sure you'll find something that you like. They're great people doing excellent work and we're adding new members all the time. I won't shout out individual each individual show because this show's already run way over time, uh, so much longer than I usually record. Uh, don't forget to follow me on Facebook and Instagram at the Tom Petty Project and on Twitter at Tom Petty Project and you can always find me on YouTube. So go follow, like and subscribe as applicable. And again, you know what? If you like the podcast, tell other people about it. That's always great. Let's get the word out there and we can have more conversations about Tom and Tom's music. 
Um, the Tom Petty Project is not affiliated with the Tom Petty Estate in any way. And when you're looking for Tom's music, please visit the official YouTube channel first or official uh, streaming platforms like Spotify, Apple Music, and Amazon Prime and all those kinds of places. If you're looking for merchandise, please, please, please go to TomPetty.com. Uh, don't forget to check out the Tom Petty Nation and Tom Petty Fans Forever groups on Facebook if you're not already a member. Um, they're excellent groups and wonderful fan communities to hang out in. So until we meet again next week, keep listening to and sharing Tom's music. Try to be kind. Try to say I love you to someone at least once a day. Stay safe and healthy. And I'll be back with you next week to talk about the second song from Southern Accents, It Ain't Nothing to Me. Bye-bye. <laughs>